if you're on the east coast of the United States, that smoky air from last week has already disappeared. But bigger problems for the firefighting workforce, they have not gone away. The Interior Department and the Forest Service are ringing alarm bells with just a few months left for a temporary pay raise that federal firefighters got. They're warning lawmakers that without a permanent raise, many federal firefighters might be heading for the door. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with more. And let's begin about this temporary pay raise. This was from the infrastructure bill, and how much did they get temporarily? It was from that infrastructure bill, and it was a very significant pay raise, actually, Tom. It was either $20,000 or 50% increase to federal firefighters' base pay, whichever is lower of those two numbers. And that did help with recruitment and retention for the past year or a couple of years. But that pay raise, of course, was temporary, and the funding for it through the infrastructure bill will be running out at the end of September of this year. So there's just about, I believe, 14 weeks left until that happens. Right. So it runs out at the end of the fiscal year, basically. Exactly. And uh, the agencies who hire federal firefighters say that a permanent pay solution is absolutely needed before they reach that pay cliff. And they recently testified at a Senate committee uh, hearing for the Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Jaylith Hall Rivera is the Forest Service's Deputy Chief of State, Private, and Tribal Forestry. We know that the temporary bill pay increase has helped us retain some of our workforce who might have left otherwise. Uh, certainly has brought some new workers into our firefighting workforce. And that's why it's absolutely critical that we avert the pay cliff and put something permanent into place. All right. So what are some of the workforce challenges they have? The work is difficult, obviously, and they're not in nice urban firehouses where they're cooking pots of spaghetti while waiting for the latest attic fire. It's not like that at all, is it? No, it is uh, very complicated. And I th- I think the a lot of the problems that we're seeing for federal firefighters or a lot of the ones that they are citing are all intertwined with each other. According to a recent Government Accountability Office report, pay is the top challenge for federal firefighters, but that does tie back to a lot of other issues such as long hours and limited opportunities for career advancement, poor work-life balance. These are all things that are becoming a lot more exacerbated as wildfires increase across the country. And Cardell Johnson is the Government Accountability Office's Director of Natural Resources and Environment. He explained more about why pay is such an issue. Pay does not reflect the hazardous physical and mental demands of the job. Second, that pay may not be competitive with non-federal entities. And the third concern being that appropriated funds supporting recent base salary increases will likely run out this fiscal year. It has been reported that some firefighters are living out of their cars because they cannot afford housing. Duty stations that are more remote may not always provide easy access to basic services such as grocery stores or even broadband coverage raising pay as well as giving further consideration to incentives could mitigate this barrier. And then there's that issue of whether or not they have any kind of career advancement opportunity. Have there been any reforms there? And isn't this something the departments and OPM have been working on? Around this time last year, OPM did work with the Interior Department and USDA, which houses the Forest Service, and they developed a new occupational series last year. The idea is essentially to give a clearer career path for wildland firefighters specifically. As they work longer fighting fires, they can move up the pay scale and become a little bit more senior level. 
But the next part of actually using that is is the implementation of it. So they have created the occupational series, but now it's actually going to be up to the agencies to get the ball rolling on that. So Jeffrey Rupert at the Interior Department's Office of Wildland Firefighter explained where they are in, in that process. So the development of the series has very much been a, a joint collaborative effort between USDA, Interior, as well as OPM. In Interior, we've been hard at work taking the new series and developing actual position descriptions. The current status of that in Interior is we have sort of our standard while in firefighting positions, grade GS3 through 10 with PDs that are ready to go and that we're beginning to use. We still have additional work to do, especially as you get in to some of the more specialized firefighting positions and the position descriptions that will go along with it. Yeah, so GS3 through 10, you're not talking highly paid people to begin with. So that $20,000, $22,000 or 50% of their pay that is a substantial amount of money for them, you know, in terms of the uh, percentages there. Now, the GAO had other recommendations, plus there's a union, too, correct? Correct. GAO's recommendations, we'll start there. They were suggesting things like more mental health support and, of course, you know, hiring more federal firefighters would help with work-life balance. A lot of firefighters, when the wildfire season is, is really up up there, they are working, you know, 70-hour-plus weeks and I think that just makes it very difficult, and it's very tempting for them to leave when they don't see that pay increase being permanent as of now. There's also uh, some issues with retirement benefits. So federal firefighters who work on the front lines leave and then come back. There's an issue with eligibility for the early retirement, the age 57 retirement that some frontline employees get. So they're working to kind of come to a resolution for that as well. And the National Federation of Federal Employees, that's the union that represents a lot of these federal firefighters, they've been really advocating for this pay raise as well and some of the other workforce reforms that that Congress is looking at. And by the way, how many people are we talking about here? Interior employs about 5,000 federal firefighters and the Forest Service employs 12,000 firefighters. Yes, they're not a huge number of people, and they are often supplemented by state and local firefighters when things really get out of hand, correct? That's correct. And a lot of federal firefighters, one of the concerns is that a lot of them are actually leaving to go to the state or local departments instead because they offer better pay and benefits in in some cases. So I think that is part of the concern here for the federal workforce. They're trying to kind of become a little bit more competitive with that and also with less dangerous work in the private sector that does exist on the same pay scale. And the committee had pretty favorable ideas on a bipartisan way about helping out these people? They are quite bipartisan on this issue. And I think, you know, the National Federation of Federal Employees, their president, Randy Irwin, said that that bipartisanship is very promising. And he's hoping that by pushing over the next several weeks before we hit September, that they'll be able to get that pay raise implemented permanently. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thank you. Thanks. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. 
Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about 
positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for 
young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.